0: You're listening to Book Stories, a podcast about bookstores, the books inside them, and book culture. I'm your host, Vic Singh. Please subscribe to Book Stories on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you listen to shows. And thanks for helping us spread the word. This is a conversation I had with Kembrou McLeod, author of the book The Downtown Pop Underground, which is a sweeping exploration of a corner of Manhattan during the 60s and 70s that impacted the world for generations to come. This book was an elegant and comprehensive solution to an otherwise patchwork of things I knew, or thought I knew, about this scene and all the culture it was responsible for ushering in. We had a really great chat, so here it is, my conversation with Kembrew.
1: Hi, I'm Kimber McLeod, the author of The Downtown Pop Underground. You're
0: listening to Book Stories. So, Kembrew, thank you for being here. Fascinating book, fascinating um, cover art as well. Uh, what was the intention behind the book?
1: Well, it's, it's titled The Downtown Pop Underground, and it's about downtown New York in, from the late 50s to the mid-70s, basically from the rise of alternative off-off-Broadway theater to punk rock, and taking a look at this basically one-square-mile area of uh, a city that fostered so many different forms of art and expression. And what I wanted to do with the book was to make the connections between things that might not be obvious, such as uh, off-off-Broadway theater and punk rock and Andy Warhol and, you know, gender-bending and so on. And that's basically what the book is about. It's It's about a community of people who lived in very close proximity because of the layout of the downtown area, who often, uh, Cross paths and crossed into other art forms because they could. They'd run into each other on the street. So someone like Patti Smith, for instance, began, um, even before she began performing her poetry on stage, she started out in underground theater, and that's where she basically became a performer. And then she moved into poetry performance, and then after that, music. But it was through, you know, being exposed to all these different people that she was encountering uh, as well, Debbie Harry and... uh, plenty of the other people that I've talked about in the book they were able to break new ground artistically in part because again of this you know one square mile area space that encompasses Greenwich Village Soho Lower East side, uh, East Village, and so on
0: if you had to draw uh, a line in terms of the streets the north south east west street boundaries can you can you do that effectively because you use maps uh, very nicely in the book to kind of give like spatiality to what we're reading about, but what would you say are the the street boundaries
1: yeah um well, the book begins on the west side. So, imagine this square that I've been talking about—a one-square-mile uh, area—and imagine it uh, basically cut up into quarters. And the upper left square is essentially the original Greenwich Village, uh, or and then and the West Village, even further to the west, and. It begins there because, well, the Greenwich, Greenwich Village has this long history that goes back to the mid-19th century of Bohemian activity. And uh, up through the 1950s, it was a very vital area of downtown New York City. And you know, people talk about the rents being high now. Uh, people were complaining about the rents being high in Greenwich Village in the late 50s, early 60s. So what was happening during that time is people started migrating to the east to what was then known as the Lower East Side, it was known as a slum, and then it got rebranded eventually by the late '60s, early '70s as "quote unquote" the East Village, uh, basically by um, you know real estate developers and others who wanted to raise rents. Of course, and uh, and then of course those rents started going up on the newly dubbed East Village, and people started basically migrating south, and so. Uh, I divide up that square that I talked about into the, the four quadrants. So people basically begin in kind of the upper, you know, the, the northwest corner of that square mile area. They start drifting East to the Lower East Side, and also uh, South uh, down to the Bowery, which is in the kind of lower right-hand corner, uh, and then also Soho, which occupies basically south of Houston Street, um, the lower left-hand corner uh, of that square mile area. And so the book basically takes place or is written chronologically largely, and so it begins in 1958, and it largely begins in Greenwich Village, and then it basically Uh, shows the evolution of downtown underground culture as it basically drifts south and east and as uh, basically new forms of artistic expression emerge. Um, You know, weird performance art, um, punk rock, (laughs) uh, and things that are just completely uncategorizable, as well as things like uh, experimental film, underground film. Underground film, for instance, Andy Warhol dabbled in uh, he didn 't just dabble in he 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 basically quit visual art for a few years uh, to dive into this really strange thing called underground film. But the thing about warhol is he 's also at the same time involved in underground poetry scenes and, and music with the Velvet Underground, of course, and so many other things. And so he sort of encapsulates this kind of boundary crossing, as does basically all of the eight key people that I follow in the book who uh, uh, the book is centered around. And through those eight people, people like uh, Andy Warhol, Patti Smith, Debbie Harry, Uh, as well as lesser-known people such as Hibiscus, who formed the gender-bending psychedelic theater troupe, the the Cockettes, and later... The Angels of Light, and other lesser-known people like uh, Ellen Stewart, who founded La Mama Theater, which was basically an underground theater that was literally began, it it began underground in a basement of a Lower East Side apartment. And so by mixing basically well-known people and lesser-known people that people should know about, like Hibiscus and Ellen Stewart, it gives a kind of broad uh, snapshot of that moment in time.
0: Yeah, it was, it's a sweeping coverage, and I was wondering, like, how you the cast of characters that you selected to tell the story, um, I noticed the pattern of you had some very well-known faces, and then you meshed it with some not-so-well-known faces, and that was very effective. So you mentioned the book has three themes, uh, experimentation, hybridity, and border crossing. Uh, can you discuss those and connect any dots between them?
1: Yeah, um... So the reason why I ended up picking these people is because they embody those qualities, uh, experimentation, border crossing, and uh, hybridity. And all those words are also kind of connected in some ways, interconnected, uh, because they're all about Well, simply breaking down boundaries. And the eight key people that I focus on, for instance, Andy Warhol and uh, Patti Smith, all of them worked in multiple art forms and multiple genres. And they were literally breaking down the barriers between, you know, visual art and experimental film and uh, Andy Warhol was also involved in the off-off Broadway movement, underground theater, um, and also they're crossing other kinds of borders between like straight and queer. They're they're crossing boundaries that were in ways that were transgressive for the time. I mean, even just the mention of homosexuality in mainstream culture and mainstream media was verboten. So uh, that's another way in which the book uh, and the book's main characters embody uh, those qualities. Uh, They embodied it aesthetically and they embodied it, uh, literally embodied it through, you know, performing gayness uh, in public spaces, which was really never done before.
0: When did you know this was a book?
1: Well, uh, I'm, I'm 48. This is the year uh, 2019. And back in 1989, I had the idea for this book when I met Lou Reed uh, backstage after a concert that he put on uh, with Mo Tucker from the Velvet Underground uh, opening. Anyway, I somehow made my way backstage. I, I somehow got a backstage pass. And I'd brought albums for him to sign. But when I got there, um, no one else was there. He was just alone in the green room. So I buttonholed him. And I, I had been already absorbing all sorts of information about his musical career in the Velvet Underground. And so I just had all these questions for him. Like, oh, you know, before you were in the Velvet Underground... Uh, you were in this group called The Primitives and you released a single and it was a, ostensibly a pop single, but the guitar sounds like the Velvet Underground, or at least this guitar burst in the middle of it. And I had all these questions like that for him. And he seemed, I was 18, but I probably looked 15 at the time. And he, I guess he was bemused enough to sort of answer my questions. And I transcribed them right afterwards, and that was literally the first interview for this book that I had. And I've always known that I wanted to write this book, but it it wasn't until I I had written a draft of this book back in 2002, 2003, but I didn't like it. And it it really wasn't until I started making the connections between underground theater and punk rock, uh, you know, from sort of seeing this trajectory from the late 50s with the emergence of Off Off Broadway, which was a movement that took, you know... Storefronts that were basically abandoned and turned them into DIY performance spaces. Uh, Back in the late 50s and throughout the 60s, underground theater artists were basically breaking down the barriers between performer and audience basically, and they were being very transgressive and in your face, literally in your face, all of the qualities that are later described, that are later used to describe punk rock. And so once I started seeing that continuity, that's when I realized I had a book, had an interesting book. And then um, by uh, selecting these eight key people who are part of this downtown social network, those eight people through just one degree of separation allows me to talk about basically everyone, from John Cage, who isn't one of the main characters, but he appears often, to, you know, Robert Rauschenberg, and, and so on and so forth.
0: Not to put you on the spot, but a couple of your favorite Lou Reed tunes?
1: Oh, gosh, there are so many. I mean, I, I guess I immediately gravitate towards the first three Velvet Underground albums, uh, and I love "I'll Be Your Mirror," either sung by him or by Nico on that first album. Candy says, also, um, and that was another question I asked him when I met him backstage. I was, I started making, uh, putting together. The connections between the name Candy that would appear in songs, like in Walk on the Wild Side, uh, he says, uh, sings says, uh, Candy came from out on the island, Long Island, um, in the back room. She was everyone's darling. And he's referring to the back room of Maxis, Kansas City, which is another one of these spaces uh, where all sorts of different people from different scenes, political scenes, art scenes, performance scenes, and so on, they they congregated in the back room of this restaurant slash bar named Maxis Kansas. City.
0: Andy Warhol hung out there.
1: Oh, yeah. He had, you know, he was at the head, he was, yeah, at his round table, uh, surrounded by his various sycophants, as well as really interesting people. And so, back to Lou Reed uh, and Candy, uh, I I asked him, like, so is the Candy and Candy Says and the Candy and Walk on the Wild Side the same person in... transcribed this right afterwards. And he said, yeah, you know, you could say that. Uh, and then he gave a really kind of Lou Reedish perfunctory answer to that. But it, he still confirmed that, yeah, it, to me, this 18-year-old who was learning a lot but still knew very little, oh, you know, that is the same person. So I started reading more about who Candy Darling was. And people still really don't know who she was, but uh, Candy Darling was a off-off-Broadway performer who is... In retrospect, we can uh, her friends can say that she was probably transgender, but at the time, uh, they saw her basically as a performance artist, even though that term hadn't even come into being quite yet. They basically saw her as, yeah, a performance artist who was riffing on stardom and, and, um, and being a star. So anyway, I, I started learning about all this stuff way back before I was 18. Then I met Lou Reed, and create that, that created the spark for this idea for the book, even though I had, didn't have the tools or ability to write uh, an ambitious book like this back when I was 18. And as I said, about 15 years ago, I had finished a draft, but it just wasn't satisfactory. And I finally got to the point over the past few years where after doing, uh, couple hundred interviews, uh, over a million words of transcriptions, ultimately, as well as quarter million words of transcriptions from archival sources and stuff like that, uh, digging through archives. That's when I felt confident that I could um, pull off this book, and I, I, I'm really pleased with it now.
0: now you synthesized it beautifully. Um, the book scope spans three decades, the 50s, 60s, and 70s. In doing this book, what stood out to you about each decade
1: well, the book is divided into three parts, part one, part two, and part three. And if I had been really pretentious, I would have actually named uh, them act one, act two, and act three, because the book really follows a three-act structure. Uh, the part one is literally titled setting the scenes, plural scenes, uh, where I basically introduce all the different uh, art scenes, music scenes, and so on, and then the people who represent them, uh, all the characters, basically. So it, it follows this three-act structure and Part two or act two is titled Action, because that's when all, you know, the stuff hits the fan, where you have the emergence of the gay rights movement, uh, feminism, uh, new explosions in creativity and smashing of boundaries between art forms, sparks are flying all over the place because of the Civil Rights Movement as well as, of course, the anti-war movement against the Vietnam War. And so uh, part two, which kind of spans most of the 60s, is titled Action, and, and that really is what's going on. Like, all kinds of crazy stuff is happening. And part three, or act three, is basically where the book resolves itself, where where all this, this storm of activity gets resolved in this basically shifting of energy from off-off-Broadway, underground theater, and all the other art forms that I write about, and sort of funnels into this vortex of new creative activity, which is known as punk. So basically sort of... As I said earlier, begins uh, with off-off Broadway and ends with punk, and those two things are connected by the fact that they both use DIY spaces. They both broke down barriers between performer and audience, and so on and so forth. and And that's the kind of narrative arc of it.
0: You segued very nicely to my next question, which is sort of like a Irving explainer question: punk music. What is it? Where did it originate? And who are the founding members?
1: Unfortunately, punk today gets kind of stereotyped as the the domain of angry, usually white boys <laughs> uh, screaming. And one of the things that I wanted to do with this book is create a counter-narrative of punk. I still haven't answered your question, what is punk? Uh, I, I started by saying, what is the popular conception of punk? Um, but it really, by looking at... What was happening in downtown New York was not the domain of angry, white, straight boys. There were a lot of gay men and women involved. And what punk to them was really about was about border crossing, hybridity, and experimentation, basically trying to do something new uh, and also, again, returning to this theme, break down the barrier between performer and audience. And so when you look at television and Patti Smith and the Ramones and the Mumps and Suicide uh, and all these different artists who are considered kind of the founding figures of punk, they didn't have a unified sound at all. Uh, Punk later becomes known as like uh, loud, fast, distorted music as, as performed kind of by the the Ramones, for instance, but in in reality, uh, not only is the the music very diverse, but the people who are creating it were quite diverse. Not necessarily racially, but in terms of kind of the full spectrum of sexuality, of in terms of all these other things, you can look at. Uh, Debbie Harry on one end, uh, who's embodying and performing, ironically, this version of femininity. Um, And on the other end of the spectrum, you have Patti Smith, who is, you know, this androgynous poet. And you can look at the New York Dolls, this band that inspired a lot of punk artists from the early 70s, who were gender-bending, straight, Rock guys who formed this band called the new york dolls and and they picked up basically a lot of the the flair the the fashion sense from directly from the underground theater scene so David Johansen, the lead singer of the New York dolls, he was working at a, a basically a clothing store and a costume store that, uh, whose owner costumed a lot of off-off-Broadway shows. And so uh, he's absorbing, the, the New York Dolls are absorbing that off-off-Broadway underground theater aesthetic, which is very kind of campy and and comes out of the gay scene.
0: What impressions did the downtown pop underground, as you define it, leave on the city that still exists today?
1: Sadly, a lot of the places that I write about are long gone, even CBGB. And, and, and sadly, it's a high-end fashion store, which in the way that our culture and economy works, uh, they decided to preserve the kind of interior aesthetics of CBGB and kept a lot of the flyers and the original bar on the wall, which is now used for cash registers to sell their $2,000 jackets or God knows how much that stuff costs. I went in there and I was just too afraid to even look at the price tags, but I, I, it's a John Favardos store and I, I can only imagine. So... The downtown area that I write about no longer is the center of this thriving uh, burst of creativity just simply because, well, uh, as various people have said before, uh, punks are the foot soldiers of gentrification, and... Uh, the reason why all this really interesting, great stuff was happening in the 50s, 60s, and 70s was because people could afford to basically have a part-time job and spend a quarter of their time doing pickup work and the rest of their time exploring their muse or just being crazy or having fun. And you can't afford to do that in downtown New York anymore. Uh, a lot of these addresses where that, that held these old places are th- among the highest income zip codes in the entire country. So I think the only thing that remains of the reverberations that, uh, of the movements that I write about in the book is just the inspiration, the spark of inspiration. You can't really, I mean, so many of those places are just gone. And so I hate to end your question on a kind of downbeat note, but that's just, that's the way it works. And then of course. I, I still remember, you know, I, uh, I was living outside of uh, near New York City and I would visit New York through the 90s and new places such as um, Tonic opened and as well more established avant-garde venues like the, the Knitting Factory were still around. But already by the late 90s, a lot of those places were on their last legs. And so by their early aughts, the knitting factory closed, Tonic closed, and a lot of people were moving out to Brooklyn, uh, to to Will- the neighborhood of Williamsburg. But of course, uh, and I remember when friends started going out there and I was like, why would you want to live out there? There's nothing going on there. And well, the rent is cheap and and, and that that's why they're moving there. And and, and of course, we, know, we all know what happened to Williamsburg as well. So uh, I uh, just to sum up, I think in answering your question, the only thing that remains of the kind of inspiring stuff that was happening in New York is just the memory of it. Um, There's, of course, if you dig deep enough in the various boroughs of New York, you're going to find all sorts of really interesting, awesome stuff that's happening. But what made downtown New York very unique from, you know, the late 50s to the mid 70s was the fact that all these poor artists and musicians and so on could afford to live on next to nothing and they would run into each other on the street or at venues and new ideas would be sparked and plays would be written, songs would be written and so on. And that's much harder to kind of pull off when everyone's dispersed throughout the various boroughs living in individual neighborhoods where interesting stuff is happening, which of course will then get gentrified. And yeah. You
0: You said that punk are uh, the foot soldiers of gentrification. Yeah. I th- <laughs> said I, that?
1: Ian Mackay uh, used to say that from Fugazi. Uh, okay. Uh, I uh, like that. Sh- I think his exact words were, uh, punks were the shock troops of gentrification. But there have been various iterations of that phrase that go back much further um, that refer to the avant-garde. Like the avant-garde is the, uh, has been the foot soldier of gentrification and so on. I've I've, I've seen that in my research, uh, that theme come up and that exact phrase or variation of that phrase come up quite a bit uh, uh, going back 50 years.
0: Um, this next question is kind of, I guess, like a book pitch question. What would you like readers to take away from this book?
1: I guess I'd like them to take a lot of things away, but let's just focus on one thing. I, I'd like to sort of revise the history of punk and make people realize that punk is much more complicated and diverse than it gets kind of, as I said, stereotypes nowadays. I guess another thing is the significance and importance of community. I mean, these people were living in these neighborhoods that were real communities. And it wasn't just artists who were living there. There are a lot of working poor people who lived there, working class people uh, and, and others. And I really want readers, by reading the the reading about the interconnections between these people and these places, I want them to sort of be reminded of the importance of community. Because I guess the takeaway from the book is that it was it's not just simply that there's this moment, this glorious moment in time in downtown New York that's forever lost. Uh, we can always recapture the, the that spark in, by creating our own communities, and I think. We can say what's happened in the past couple years with Facebook and social media that perhaps online communities aren't the best spaces to kind of foster the sort of thing that I write about in the book. And so I I just hope people might be reminded of the importance of making these, you know, personal, interpersonal connections and and building communities and supporting each other. That's another takeaway from the book.
0: I always finish with the lightning round. Um what are you reading right now?
1: Yeah, that's a hard question to answer because currently I'm reading about four books. Uh, But most recently on the plane to Los Angeles, I've been reading Hillary Shute's new book, Why Comics? From Underground to Everywhere, which is, I'm only about 150 pages in, but it's this great book about comics. And uh, it's really well written, and it's based on a lot of interview research. And she writes about people who I've long admired, like uh, Gary Panter, uh, who is celebrated as someone who kind of invented the form of punk comics. And then he later went on to uh, work on Pee Wee's Playhouse, and his visual aesthetic is embedded in that set. Um, anyway, I, I really like that book. And, oh, I have a few others that I'm reading, like the, the book on 1971, uh, the author I'm spacing on. But and the title is 1971. I guess I'm interested in books that sort of delve into, like, particular forms and genres, as well as books that focus on particular moments in time. And those two things are basically what drove my writing of this book, The Downtown Pop Underground.
0: What are your filters for reading? Like, uh, how, do you, how do you find things to read? I'm always curious. It's more of like a nerdy question because there's so much there's so much content and media out there. Um, what are the what is the scaffolding you have in place for content and books?
1: Yeah, I'm really lucky because I live in Iowa City and I have about a 10 minute walk from my house this wonderful bookstore called Prairie Lights, uh, which is a Prairie Lights is a riff on the famous San Francisco bookstore City Lights, and it's unusual in that you know a lot of the employees, I think the majority of the employees have been working there for over 20 years at least. It, it's this great independent bookstore that's also uh, at the center of our community, and we have really knowledgeable employees at the store who recommend things, and I've been going there for 18 years. I've lived in Iowa City since 2000, and I'll have someone, an employee, or even a former employee who still hangs out in the cafe come up to me and say, hey, Kimbrew, have you seen this book? So I still think that's one of the best ways to learn about new books, uh, be exposed to new books, is through old school bookstores, um, because that is truly where communities are formed. And also, I've they have a cafe there. It's called The Times Club, which is a reference to in that very room in the second floor was where a lot of uh, kind of literary giants used to hang out. And uh, it was called The Times Club, and they would do readings, Robert Frost and folks like that. Um, and that same space is now a coffee shop, a cafe in the upstairs of Prairie Lights. And that also is a kind of center of our community where I've seen and gotten to know like really well-known writers like Ian Lee, or, uh, who was an MFA student at the time. Uh, at the time, she was in nonfiction with my wife, Lynn Nugent, who's managing editor of the literary journal, the Iowa Review. Anyway, that that space is this great space where people write books, including myself. And Eun Lee, she was writing her book, first book at the same time. And so it's stores like Prairie Lights, and specifically Prairie Lights for me, that uh, expose me to great new books. And of course, I hear about things online and so on. But I, I just wanted to, yeah, put out kind of the rallying cry for independent bookstores. <laughs> Thank you for doing that.
0: Where's your favorite place to write? Yeah. Do you have a favorite place to write?
1: Well, uh, actually, uh, the the Times Club, um, the the coffee shop at the upstairs of Prairie Lights. It's where a lot of people write. You can put on your headphones or not put on your headphones. Did you write most of this book there? Yeah, I wrote most of this book there. There, Prairie Lights is acknowledged. They're in my acknowledgments because I've written almost all of my books there. I've written um, this is my seventh book now. I've written most of six of my seven books there. And the reason why I like writing there is because you can do the act of writing, which is a very solitary act, but still feel like you're surrounded by people, which you are, uh, and you're surrounded by—you can feel that you're not disconnected, basically. And that's one of the wonderful things about spaces like Prairie Lights and independent bookstores like Prairie
0: Lights. Where can listeners find out more about you and your other work?
1: Well, I have a website, which is Kimbrew.com, K-E-M-B-R-E-W.com. But also I encourage uh, listeners to go to another URL, which is for the book. It's called thedowntownpupunderground.com. Just make sure that you type in the article, the thedowntownpupunderground.com. And it's basically a map website that brings to life, to interactive life, hyperlinked life, The book. So most of the excerpts or I excerpt most of the books, most of the things that happen in the book and connect them to particular places on the map. So if you want to go to, I mentioned earlier, Max's Kansas City, you can go to the downtown pup underground, go to the map or do a search for Max's Kansas City. And you can see, you know, the the dozens of events that happens there uh, that are excerpted, or they appear on the website as excerpts from the book. And so you can then, you know, go from a place to— the the place will list all the different people who hung out there. So Max's Kansas City has this long list— from Warhol and Debbie Harry, who used to be a waitress there, Patty Smith, who used to sip Cokes with uh, Robert Mapplethorpe as they sort of wanted to try to edge their way into the back room where Andy Warhol was and so you can go to this website and you can uh, go to a place and you can see who hung out there, click on a person, and then uh, when you click on a person, then you get links to all these other excerpts and all the other uh, from the book and all these other places uh, where people hung out and you can also. Yeah, you can search by scenes, by place type, like bookstores or whatever. And so, yeah, that was a really fun thing to do. I didn't want to just simply do a book website. I want to do the most awesome book
0: site ever. I love it. I love it. The book is The Downtown Pop Underground, and it's beautifully done. Cambru, thank oh, you. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Book Stories. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to shows. Book Stories is an alternate Thursdays production. Special thanks to Savannah Wright for production assistance. I'm Vic Singh. Thanks for listening.